piece. So that's where all the judges sat, that's where all of the lawyers sat, that's where all of the politicians sat, was in the gate of the city. Everyone good on that? All right. So Abraham is sitting in his tent. He sees three strangers come up. His response is to run out to them, greet them, welcome them in. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of real quick background on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. First of all, we tend to only think of it as two cities, but in this story, it's really affecting five cities. Right? It was Sodom and Gomorrah and their sister cities. And so tradition has it that Sodom and Gomorrah had everything. Right. So why would why would you imagine that? Uh, like, what would be a textual indication of why we? why the rabbis, why the sages imagined that Sodom and Gomorrah had absolutely everything they needed. Can you think of a, a textual uh, a reason for that? Well, they were living a life of excess. I mean, there was okay. prostitution. There was, there was a lot of extra money left over to spend on frivolous things. Okay. I, I mean, that's more conceptual. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Earlier in Genesis, when Abraham and Lot parted ways, Lot picked the more lush landscaping, so that could indicate that they have a good resource for basic things they would need, and then some, such as livestock. Okay, so there's a section where Abraham and Lot are going their separate ways. Abraham says to Lot, look over all the land, you can choose wherever you want. And Lot looks, and it says, and he saw it was like the garden of the Lord, is what that passage says, right? So we think of the garden of Eden, we think of the garden of the Lord, we imagine every possible need is met in that space, it has all the resources you could imagine, great abundance. And so when Lot sees the land that will become Sodom and Gomorrah, or what is already Sodom and Gomorrah at that moment, he saw it and imagined it to be the equivalent of what maybe he had heard or was told or whatever of the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, right, Diana. So that spot there in that passage is kind of gives us an indication of what Sodom and Gomorrah's situation was like. So, thing, an aside, in rabbinic tradition, there was a saying that there are uh, three types of people. It might be four types, and I'll remember as I tell it. And there is the person who says, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is yours, and that is a saint, right? Whatever is mine is yours, and whatever is yours is yours, and that person is a saint. Then they would say that there's a person that says, whatever is mine is yours, and whatever is yours is mine, and that's a fool, <laughs> okay? Then they would say, then there's the individual that says, whatever is there's four. Whatever is mine is mine, and whatever is yours is mine, and that is a wicked person. And then the last one is, whatever is mine is mine, and whatever is yours is yours, and that's a sodomite. So they said that whoever says that, they are representing what was the problem in the city of Sodom. And so part of the tradition was, was that Sodom imagined that all of the resources was theirs, and they had no responsibility for anybody else around them. That anybody else's needs or has or what they have was was theirs, and we don't want it. 
but we're also not going to contribute to uh, helping in any way. And so part of the tradition was is that strangers, when they would pass by the city and need a place to stay, all that the sodomites imagined was that they would bring down the value of the city if they stayed. So instead, they would show their dominance over them, and they would show their, their power over them by raping them and then throwing them out, right, to show how strong they were. So in particularly in ancient uh, uh, Eastern culture, and actually probably all ancient cultures, unfortunately, was this sense of, you know, if you raped someone, it was a way of showing or demonstrating uh, dominance. We have a dog that's really hopped up on donuts out here, so she is losing her mind. Sorry. Great. Um, so anyhow, that's the scene. It's okay, I got it. Um, so that's kind of the scene with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and we often tend to think of Sodom and Gomorrah in a different light um, than, than that. Just take her with the crate and put her in Malcolm's room in the crate, or put her out on the back porch. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Now you want to say? Um, so anyhow, that's kind of the picture with Sodom and Gomorrah is this picture of what is mine is mine, what is yours is yours. And for us, I think that's a really hard reading of this passage because that's kind of how we've been raised to think, right? And so we're not realizing that in the way that we were raised to think is actually what they're being judged for, right? So Ezekiel 16.49 says, This is the sin of your sister city, Sodom. She had plenty and did not take care of the poor. She had plenty and did not take care of the orphans. And so this was the sin. This is what brought God's anger and destruction upon Sodom. We want to make it about the violence. We want to make it about the, uh, well, the outright violence. I would say keeping someone from having uh, the ability to eat is quite violent, right? Um, but we want to make it about something that's a little bit easier for us to point to and say, I don't participate in that, so that's on Sodom and Gomorrah, and I don't have to worry about it because that's not part of who I am, okay? All of that's being contrasted to Abraham. Abraham, on the other hand, is sitting, and kind of the picture in the text is he's sitting in the tent, uh, tent opening. Hey. Uh, Abraham is sitting in the tent opening, and he sees three strangers. And while he's sitting in the tent opening, you might as well let her go for you, Jared. Okay, go. Go be Jared. So Abraham is you. We need a tranquilizer for our dog. <laughs> the plant in Toledo does not need a mascot. Um, so Abraham, however, when he sees three strangers, his immediate reaction is to go and uh, greet them. One of the things that we miss because we like to imagine the, tr uh, the three strangers as being Trinity representatives, right? That's how I was often taught it, is that we miss that they're three separate entities apart from his conversation with God. Mm -hmm. 
So Abraham is actually having this intimate moment with God. He's sitting in his tent opening, having a face-to-face with God. Then he sees three strangers, and he gets up, and he's like, hang on, God, and he runs to the three strangers, right? I don't know that there are many of us within the church, within the faithful, that would have this this intimate face-to-face verbal communication with God. And with three strangers walking by, tell God, you and I go there. Right? But that's what's happening in the text. So, so Abraham puts God on hold and runs out to the strangers. Okay? Are we all tracking so far? Any questions from anybody so far? Blacksburg, any questions? So is that is, you know, sort of the first step towards uh, being a more of a, or less of a submissive in the way of God? Well, we haven't got to the point yet where God uh, is going to stand before Abraham. That sort of shows that in Abraham's mind that the strangers, in some respects, are more, quote-unquote, as important as God is. Right. Well, right. In fact, actually, the argument has been within uh, ancient Jewish tradition that uh, the way you treat the stranger is actually more significant than the way that you interact with God, right? Because uh, we all have moments where if it's God's present, we're on our best behavior type thing. Uh, but when it's a stranger, that's our opportunity to be anonymous, to, uh, to not have be held accountable for our actions. And so how we treat the stranger is almost viewed more significantly as a greater value than how we, even when we're sitting in our tent open, Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking about like, oh, when the strangers passed Sodom or Gomorrah, like they, um, you know, would assert their dominance. So what? What tells us that? The fact that the angels, when they entered the city, were rape, were they wanted to rape them. Okay. I didn't know if that is that is that like is there other like tradition? <laughs> I, well, I mean, just, just the fact that. that they don't know the people but they're a guest in the city. And as a guest in the city, the city's response is to show them dominance by raping them. Right? If, if, we reduce this, if we reduce those moments, he's fine, by the way. It's, it's, that doesn't bother anyone. June Barking does. Um, but uh, but that's a, that was a demonstration of dominance. That, that's the only reason to do it, is to show that the angels that came in, the strangers in the city, are less valuable than the, the residents of the city, right? And then also within Ezekiel sixteen forty nine, where we see this is the sin. They had lots of money and they treated people poorly. Does that make sense? I mean, were you asking if there was other references to that being a practice in that part of the world? Yeah, I guess because like I'm just like one. References this yeah, like one example doesn't like mean this is the truth, I guess is my... So are you talking about an example, another example in the Bible, or are you talking about just another example in culture? I, I, my understanding was, I thought you were saying, hey, this is rabbinic tradition. Yes, so that's in the Talmud, and the Midrash, and the Mishnah, all of those have those traditions. But those would have been traditions, retelling or imagining the story of Sodom. That's what I was like. right. Sorry. Um, and I'd be happy to, if you want to afterwards, uh, get you those.
to repeat the question. <laughs> I don't know what you're asking. He's actually singing. That's fair. We, it's our worship time. Oh, what a range. That's right. <laughs> We're going for opera. <laughs> so, so that's kind of the setting with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you have Abraham. Now, Abraham goes out to the three, and one of the things I always like to point out is Abraham had just been circumcised. So the fact that he had just been circumcised within a couple of days and his desire for the uh, strangers was such that he stood up and ran to them is, again, kind of shocking to the sensibilities of people listening to this story, right? For us, we separate, we turn everything into like these little easy-to-swallow chunks. And because of that, we don't necessarily remember that Abraham was just circumcised because well that's in the prior story and so we don't necessarily are connecting these as one thing so Abraham just circumcised Abraham in a face-to-face conversation with God and his reaction to the three strangers coming over the hill is stand up and run to them right I don't know about you guys my family's reaction to three strangers walking into our neighborhood was shut the blinds lay on the floor and hope that they don't knock on the door to try to sell us something um, and so that was the that was the view uh, for my household growing up. Like now, if there's strangers walking around your neighborhood, you call the police. If there's strangers walking around your neighborhood, you you pull your kids inside from the lawn. Like in this time, three strangers meant Abraham got up and ran out to them. Now, and he was really lonely. He, he may have been very lonely. Uh, God was not good company. Uh, <laughs> now, here's the thing that I think is one of the biggest backhands to what the church has become, is Abraham runs out to the strangers and he says, how about I make you a morsel of food and get you a small amount to drink, right? And then he runs back, and they agree to that, he runs back and he sees Sarah and he says to Sarah, take three sayos of flour, which is like a hundred loaves of bread. <laughs> and he makes this, and he, they slaughter a fatted calf and they make this huge feast. So what he said to the strangers was, let me get you a morsel to eat. Now, the reason I think this is kind of a slap to the way the church does things is that we, we go to the stranger and we say, how about we make you a feast and then when all the people don't show up to help and when the resources aren't there and everything, we give them a morsel. And then we say, you should be happy that you even got anything. We didn't have to feed you. Uh, and so we promise a feast and we end up giving a morsel is typically, again, my experience in the church, maybe you guys have been fortunate and have had other experiences, but mine has typically been we overpromise, underdeliver. And, uh, and that can go on a range of things, not just physical things. Right? Um, and here we have Abraham who under-promises and over-delivers, which is in stark contrast, again, to what's going on in the city of Sodom. All right, any questions so far? Blacksburg, are you got, is your screen frozen or are you guys just... <laughs> <laughs> They're very still. Very stoic there in Blacksburg. All right, any questions here? Uh, Ashley, any questions? No? All right. So I'm just going to keep powering forward then. All right. So here's, here's the thing is that Abraham, his response to God saying, I'm going to go and destroy the city, was he begins to plea with God 
for God to not for God to preserve the city if there's a certain number of faithful within the community. All right, I'm choosing faithful intentionally because it's not a certain number of churchgoers or a certain number of Christians or a certain number, it's a certain number of people that are a part of the faithful, right? And in fact, God, even before he goes to Abraham, wrestles with whether or not he should even tell Abraham what he's about to do, right? So in the passage in Genesis 18, uh, verse 17, it says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So basically what God is saying is, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do because he is a man who is righteous and just? And is he going to be happy with what I'm about to do, basically? Okay? You guys see that? So, um, so this is where our scene is right now, is with that piece where uh, we have Abraham begins to argue with God. Now, in the Hebrew, Walter Brueggemann points out in, the, in his commentary on Genesis that in the Hebrew here, the picture is actually that God is standing before Abraham, which is the submissive position of God. So God is like, should I even tell Abraham what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And then in addition to that, God listens to Abraham's argument for the preservation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God and Abraham start this back and forth thing where Abraham is arguing God down further and further. And Abraham and God finally come to an agreement at 10. All right? Um, so a couple of you have heard me talk about this before, but if you haven't, what do you imagine 10 would have been, uh, would have meant for, for God, for Abraham? So 10 was the number necessary to have a quorum for a gathering of the faithful. So in ancient Judaism, it would have been a synagogue, right? Mm -hmm. For us, it would have been uh, enough for a quorum to have a gathering for a church. And so the argument that Abraham is making seemingly to God is if there's even enough people distributed amongst these five cities to make one faithful community, preserve all the cities around it preserve all the people around it. What a powerful prayer. Now, the unfortunate part is, it doesn't seem as though there were 10, <laughs> right? Um, but let's, let's talk about that. Abraham imagines that his call to be the father of the faithful, to be the father of Israel, to be the father of the Hebrew people, that his call... His call is to uh, to plead with God on behalf of the people around him. So let me let me point this out real quick because I think this is so important for us as we think about how to be uh, a church in Blacksburg, a church in Toledo, a church in Madison, wherever you might be. This is so important. We are called to be a priesthood to the nations. 
Um, right? That's what the text says. It says in a couple different spots in the scriptures that we are called to be a priesthood to the nations. Now, most of us would prefer to be prophets to the nations because prophets get to go wag their finger and tell people how terrible they're doing and how they should be doing more godly things, right? But that's not what we're called to. As the faithful, we are called to be a priesthood to the nations. The priesthood's role is very different. The priesthood is even very different than modern priesthood is today. So a modern priesthood today, say I was a priest, right? The modern priesthood stands in front of the people on behalf of God. That's how we've, we've made priesthood look, right? However, the priesthood in Israel was the opposite direction. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, put on the ephod, put on all the, all the jewels, everything, and stand before God to plead on behalf of the people for God's mercy. So we have the priesthood that tends to, in our modern days, that face the people and tell the people how to live like God. And I would argue that's more of the job of the prophet, which might be why we have such bad priesting going on in the church. Um, the role of the priest, however, in ancient Israel's mind, was to stand before God to argue for God's mercy for the people around them. So when the, for instance, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest wasn't confused about the fact that there were people within Israel that were not behaving well. But the priest still went in to plead for God's mercy for those people anyhow. Abraham was not confused about the devastating things that were going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sister cities. He was not confused about that. But Abraham's perspective was still to stand before God and plead for the preservation of those cities. So when we think about what is the church's call today, the church's call is still to be a priesthood to the nations or a priesthood for the nations. I think when we add the two, that's where we start to get confused, right? We are a priesthood for the nations. And our job is that we stand before God pleading for God's mercy on our neighborhoods. Like what happens, what changes if like just dust covenant church, right? Uh, so those of us gathered here and there's other people that identify within a part of our community. If we just imagined our role was to constantly behave in a manner that pleaded for God's mercy for all of those around us, what do you think that would change about the way that you interacted with your neighbors? If, if you spent your, your time with God sitting in your tent opening like Abraham and your focus was on serving the stranger, uh, over-delivering and under-promising, right? And it was pleading for the preservation and the well-being of your neighbor. How do you imagine that you would change? How do you imagine that it would influence and affect the way you interacted with the people around you? So me growing up in the church, I was often taught to be suspicious of the stranger, be suspicious of anyone who's not a member of the faithful, to uh, condemn people who didn't agree with me, uh, to uh, all those things. We can go down a list, and we're in the middle of political season, so we're all very familiar with that list. Uh, create memes about people that you don't like, right? So, so that's, that's what we're in the midst of currently. But the text calls us from the very first Hebrew, Abraham, right? This is the first prayer after Abraham enters covenant with God. The first covenant of the father of the Hebrew people, and his first prayer is preserve the unfaithful. 
did he have access to God before this? Uh, well, it depends on what you buy. So, like, there's traditions, again, in rabbinic Judaism within the Talmud and stuff that uh, he had. In fact, there's a really funny story that I'd be happy to share with you at some point about his father, the idols, Elsman, and some of the stuff that came about with that. Um, but we, we get the impression that Abraham had been in some way seeking out God and connected with God in a meaningful way. And, we, and he has actually interacted with God prior to this moment because he was in the covenant with God. So this is the first time God came to him? Uh, no, because in uh, Genesis 12 through 14, when Abraham signs the covenant, God seems to be very present in that. But this is all one section, I would say. You know, again, this is our problem with kind of breaking this up into different stories. This is all one section. So this seems to be Abraham's story, and Abraham's story includes these interactions with God. All right. Any questions about this so far? What do you guys think about that even? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a question, just even thoughts. Well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so my experience is a little bit different. But I would say that, ironically, the, um, the, the way, like you were saying, in the United States that we're kind of we're kind of taught what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. But that transcends, um, it's, it's cultural and not cultural like Christianity or non-Christians. It's cultural in the United States. So I had the same kind of upbringing, even right. though I wasn't raised in the church. Um, but in recent history for me, I guess my own personal focus even has been, you know, to, to want to share my resources and, um, and share my time um, serving uh, and giving. But, but still with that, um, with that pervasive mindset that, um, you know, these people that are different than me, I need to serve them. Versus that, versus, um, I don't know how to phrase it. It's just in my head just this morning from what you said. So, like, um, having more of a mindset of, of pleading to God for the people yeah. is different than, um, here, let me do this for you. Right. Yep, I agree. It, it can look exactly the same from the outside. Yeah. But from the inside, it's completely different. Well, I think one kind of comes with the mindset to contribute towards fixing the person. Right. And the other one goes towards the mindset of leaving the person to be autonomous, but pleading for God's mercy on their behalf. Right. 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 So that would bring me to something that I think is really important. So in the church, we often hear intercessory prayer talked about, mm -hmm. but few of us really know what the heck that means right? We, we say, oh, intercessory prayer, that's where I list off all the flaws of my friends and stuff, and we pray for them. <laughs> um, okay, hopefully that's, hopefully that's not quite how you do it. That's exactly how I thought of it. <laughs> but, but I've been in those prayer sessions, and it's, it's kind of awkward at times. But we, we are a little confused about intercessory prayer, where we think intercessory prayer is that we pray God does something for somebody else, right? right. Whereas intercessory prayer fits with this priesthood mindset that it's more so that you're behaving as a proxy. Imagine that you are standing before God when other people are unable to. Like, think about that. 
that's a powerful thing. So like if you know someone is suffering from anxiety, depression, or uh, abuse, or anything like that, even it doesn't have to be that how, that big of a thing, if you, you imagine I'm going to stand in their place before God, pleading with God's healing, pleading with God's mercy, pleading for God's forgiveness, and we actually try to, you know, stand in their shoes before God on their behalf. That's such an interesting way to look at it because it's so, uh, with the, the idea of Jesus is... Right. Exactly. The same. Well, and he's the high priest, right? right? And so, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that we've lost so much of this because it's so consistent with all of the text. In fact, there's a passage where, um, oh, oh, it's 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 like in Genesis 20s, and it says uh, that he stood before God on her behalf, mm-hmm. right? And that's intercessory prayer. Like, imagine if we said that. Uh, we're going to have a time where we stand before God on behalf of our neighbors. That has a whole different feel of than then pray for the neighbors. We're going to pray for our neighbors, right? Because I think one, it makes us active in the prayer, right? Where the other one is, God, you do something about this. And we can kind of wash our hands of it and be like, well, I gave that to God. We're good, right? Whereas if we're actually standing before God on behalf of someone, there's this this personal uh, commitment, this just personal uh, indebted moment. I don't know. That's probably not the right term, but there's this, this commitment that we have that's very different. And I imagine that that's more of what Abraham is doing in this section is that Abraham standing before God and imagining the crisis that's about ready to hit. Right, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's pleading with God. It's Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus imagining in some way if he can stand before God on behalf of them because they don't know how to stand before God at this moment. And Jesus is recognizing that when he pleads for them. Right? This is all part of this picture of us being the priesthood and not being the prophets. Right? There are some people that are called to be prophets. Um, however, I would argue... Uh, those are few, far between, and you don't have to declare it about yourself. People will know. So, so in a pra- practical, modern-day Chris Guy terms, isn't any prayer intercessory prayer, prayer in some respects? I mean, when I when I, I just a few minutes ago prayed for something that came to mind, it, it was my regular type of prayer. But really, am I standing before God? Is that should that be the mindset I should have when I pray? As things come to mind, or at night, or in the morning, or during the day. Well, I think intercessory prayer is specifically about or for other people. Right. I just did. That's right. That's the question. Right, and I think in those moments, if we can, in some way, put ourselves in the place of that person, and you know, I've tried it, and it's awkward because it's not part of our normal right. process to be like, say I or me. Um, And I also don't know that that's completely healthy, but I think that there's something valuable about recognizing that, um, you know, someone needs to get to the grocery store, they need food in their cupboard, but they don't have the resources to do it or the transportation to do it. And you go on their behalf to the grocery store and get the groceries and bring it back for them. That's a very different feeling than, than, just saying, oh, I'm really sorry, you can't get to the grocery store. I'll pray for you. 
Well, yeah, but that, that's sort of missed him. I'm not, not going to question you, but I, this may be not really important either. But um, for me, my, my if I put my mindset as I'm the priest before God, it's different than me just crying. It's just sort of like an inward thing that I'm feeling. That's, yeah. That's, you know, I need to look at prayer differently. I, I would agree that we need to look at prayer differently. Go ahead. Is the difference... It, instead of praying for the person to change or do something differently and pointing at them how they need to do something like, like for instance, Lord, my friend Jane, I'm totally making this up, um, is sinning in this horrible way, Lord, and I'd really like for you to step in and help her to stop doing that sin. Instead, it's, Lord, have mercy on my friend Jane. She doesn't know what she's doing wrong, and I don't really know the whole story, but step in and heal her. So it's asking the God to do the work instead yeah. of asking Jane to change and fix herself. I think that that's part of it. I think the other thing that ends up happening if we if we do intercessory well, which I think would take practice, you also begin to understand why Jane might be in the situation that Jane's in. Right? That you might begin to understand why uh, why she responds a certain way because you, you're beginning to identify with Jane. Uh, in what's going on. Does that make sense? So, like, and all of a sudden, your prayer might shift completely away from focusing on the sin of Jane to, oh my God, let her know she's loved and let her know that she's valued and that she's equal and she has a voice that's worth hearing. Uh, and that becomes our prayer as opposed to the sin piece, which is usually just a symptom of whatever suffering a person's going through. And so by, by doing intercessory in a manner where we stand as a proxy, we begin to understand what it feels like to, to be Jane, maybe, in some small, very small way. And this is where it gets, can be icky, because we should never try to imagine that we it's like become... It's acting. It's, maybe. Very you know, unhealthy. <laughs> right. We, should, we, we need to be very careful of that and make sure that the other person remains completely autonomous uh, and we don't try to take on more than we can. But it's but the, the idea of the high priest standing before God was he wore the ephod with all the, the symbols and stuff of the different tribes of Israel because the, the priest was doing what the priest could to imagine that he was all of those tribes standing before God begging for God's mercy. Picture someone walking in with like a an outfit with the flag of every nation. Like just that picture that imagery like and trying to understand and relate and plead for mercy and, and maybe we, we begin to understand some of the plights of people. I think the other thing with intercessory that is important is that when we think about prayer, we tend to think about at the most active, we're on our knees and lifting our hands, right? But the rabbis imagined that prayer was uh, with your feet, right? So if you remember, uh, maybe not personally, but the march on the Selma march, you know, MLK Jr. And next to him, you have this old rabbi, Abraham Heschel. And Heschel was asked why a rabbi, why a Jewish man from New York would come down and march with MLK. And his response was, sometimes you get on your knees to pray and sometimes you pray with your feet, right? And I think that this idea of intercessory prayer, this idea of priesthood also really requires physical participation. Um, so for instance, again, 
I grew up in the church where I was, I often was taught to pray that the path would be smoothed out, right? Like things are difficult and life is complicated and Lord, could you please just kind of, you know, get rid of some of these complications and stuff. And a, a more biblical perspective of prayer would be, Lord, the path is difficult. The, the path is narrow. It's steep, whatever. Uh, and we would pray for the feet of a gazelle or we'd pray for the feet of a mountain lion, or we'd pray for the feet of whatever it might be that is best suited for the terrain ahead of us, not so we didn't have to uh, work hard to walk, but that we had the right equipment. And so this, this prayer of we pray with our feet, we pray for the right feet for the right situation, all has this implication that it's participation in prayer. Um, you know, again, part of my experience in the church has been that you, you know, we're, we're, today we're going to pray for the poor. <laughs> and so all of a sudden we, we have this prayer time and we say, dear God, please help the poor in Toledo. Amen. And then we go have lunch. Right. And I think the response from God might be, right. Not the words in God's mouth, but I think the response of God might be, uh, I thought I asked you to do that. As a member of the faith, well, I thought I asked you to take care of the poor. I thought I asked you to welcome the stranger. I thought I asked you to uh, eliminate the dangers of the marginalized. I thought I asked you to provide justice. I thought I asked you to love your neighbor. I thought I asked you to live in such a way that there's no suffering in your midst. I thought that's what I asked you to do. And, and often our prayers are, God, can you handle this? Because, well, i got a busy schedule this and so this is kind of a flip, and I think it's beautiful that Abraham here seems to have this mindset that it's he's gonna he's gonna stand between God and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I think that's part of what I see is in this picture of where you know Brueggemann talks about the Hebrew of God standing before Abraham is that I almost see Abraham standing on this hill with his back to Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is in front of him, and he's like preserve the city there are even 10 righteous, right? We even find that later in this section, it says Lot is rescued because God remembered Abraham, right? Lot wasn't rescued for any other reason than because of Abraham's prayer for uh, redemption, Abraham's prayer for uh, preservation. So I think that this is also, all right, so what questions do, I know that we kind of, this is one of my favorite passages, and I always try to cram about 90 minutes worth of stuff into a very short period of time, so I apologize. So any questions or thoughts or pushback even? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm still trying to form this thought in my head so I don't fully know the or whatever, but I think it's an interesting um, know-your-role scenario, Like, because I'm picturing, okay, let's say – Abraham was kind of your modern, like stereotypical uh, Christian or whatever. He might, he might be like, "Well, let me go into the city and like make ten, ten people, like or make you know, like do this. I don't know. I guess outreach or something that you would call, which I don't know, which do we call it? But that like his role as the priest there was to like intercede for the whole city and not necessarily go make those ten. Whereas you know, we're contrasting this with Jonah, right? Whereas Jonah has the call of, like, the prophet, and so that's what he's called to do. So it's a really interesting, like, know your role, like, dichotomy. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so last week when we looked at Jonah, where we were discussing what was the role of a prophet in a wicked city. And this week we're seeing what is the role of a priest in a wicked city. Um, and that's, it's very different. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, we relish the role of prophet and we would much rather do that than the role of priest that begs for God's mercy for the people around us. We'd much rather go wag our finger uh, at people and tell them repent. Um, and, but again, scripture tells us we are the priesthood. That doesn't say we are the prophets. We are the priesthood and some are called to be prophets. And it's almost, a, to me, it's almost an even more beautiful picture because it's, it's that despite what they're doing, like I'm still seeing them, like I'm still loving them. I still care about them. And, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's almost sad to me that I have to put that still modifier in front of that because that should just be our normal reaction. Right. And this is where I, I want to just kind of maybe put some, uh, a little bit of a, a buffer or a, a boundary here. You know, the Proverbs say only a dog returns to its vomit. This also is not a, a teaching that says you need to stay in an abusive setting and just pray for God's mercy. That by no means, or as Paul would say, heavens no, right? Uh, that is not what this teaching is. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous thing that would be easy to maybe get to and just say, I need to stay in this unhealthy setting, this unhealthy atmosphere, because I'm a priesthood, and I need to plead for God's mercy on these people. And that is not at all in this setting. This setting is, uh, is not that. And I'm trying to think of a good way to maybe engage that a little bit more. But I just want to be very careful that everyone understands this is not at all God calling people to remain in abusive settings and situations and still and plead for the mercy. Get out, right? Don't, don't be in that. That is not your role. Your job is not uh, to have to stay in an abusive setting. Uh, however, or not however, set that to the side. Our call is, though, to make sure that just because we disagree with people, just because they don't have hold the same values or the same views that we have, that we aren't recognizing their humanity and pleading with God for mercy for them, uh, which is going to change the way we interact with people, right? If we view our neighbor as wicked, evil, terrible, and deserving of damnation, well, that's going to kind of ooze out of how we talk to them. Um, if we view the person as redeemable, uh, reconcilable, restorable, all of a sudden uh, we see that uh, pile of junk in a, our neighbor's lot is something that could become a really beautiful, uh, you know, restored vehicle. I don't know. Very <laughs> terrible analogy. In there. But, all right. Any, any thoughts? Blacksburg, you guys got any questions or ideas? Um, going back to your um, comments on intercessory prayer, is yeah. there a good way to turn those into actionable items or, you know, educate people um, or, or not to, so the, the prayers, you know, God take care of this, but have us take care of it? Yeah. Um, I think for every person, the actionable part is going to be different because we each bring something unique to the table resource-wise, personality-wise, uh, what have you. Um, I think 
what hopefully happens when we do intercessory prayer is we begin to identify more and more with the person that we're standing before God on behalf of them, which then makes us be able to identify ways in their life or in, uh, in their, as a neighbor to them that we can actually care for them well. Um, and so I think, you know, Tony, you would handle that differently than I would. Um, and it also depends on who we're standing before God on behalf of. I think, so one of the things we really value with Dust is learning to ask the next better question. I think that if we can do that as intercessors as well, that that's where we can really do some good things. So like when we know somebody who is uh, struggling uh, in some way, to not just look at the struggle, but to learn to ask good questions um, about the situation that might help us be able to better care for or serve the person. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm also wondering if there's um, uh, maybe a reference, or I, I'm sure there are some, but stories or examples of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think almost all of the Gospels are, you know, that Jesus uh, Jesus is is concerned about the mother whose child just died and the implications of that. Um, that uh, Leviticus 19, where it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, gives a list of ways to actually do that. Um, I think you know even the fact that the Hebrew word to remember is an action, right? That it says God and God remembered. And therefore, he rescues Lot, right? Because the remembering was the action of rescuing Lot. So I think that whether it be God remembering or God being reminded of something, so it's not like God forgot that he had covenants or God forgot that uh, God had made promises, but instead the remembering thing is this uh, this being compelled into action. Um, I don't feel like I did a good job answering that, Tony. Does anyone have any uh, passages maybe? Uh, in mind that uh, we could offer up to Tony? I don't know about passages, but I think about as a, <clears throat> a person who has worked in healthcare, there's times when I'm an advocate for someone who is a patient and they can't oh, great. speak for themselves, yeah. either because they're unconscious or they're sick or they're not thinking clearly. And so I think there, I was thinking about moments when I was speaking on behalf of a patient to either a doctor or another right. nurse or just in general making sure that the patient got what they needed in a given situation. Yes. So I was, I was as we were talking, I was thinking about good my role as an advocate in a patient care setting yeah. that was able to affect change that benefited them and that they would have wanted if they could have done so themselves. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that's a, that's an excellent example. I think, you know, the power of advocacy can be and should be, you know, those of us that are able to use a position or privilege or power to benefit someone whose voice has been either lost, dismissed, or just unwelcomed or unheard and that we we can do that in some way be stand on behalf of them to make sure that 
that's hurt. So I think that that's a, a, a an excellent example. I think there's other professions where that's the case too. I think of certainly like a lawyer who has a client or, you know, and there, I'm sure there's more, but I just thought of those two, yeah. certainly my own profession, and then that of a lawyer who is, in essence, many lawyers, I think, are called advocates right, for their client. So yeah, I, think of, like, job applicants, like, when you're, you find people that you would trust to advocate for you to be hired. For like a reference or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. those are things. Yep, good. So, are we... Was it, I'm sorry, was it discussed at Abraham's prayer with God and asking to save Sodom and Gomorrah and the sister cities for there being 10 people as an intercessory prayer? Is that what we were? Well, I think that that's part of intercessory prayer. I think that Abraham is recognizing, like, pleading with God's mercy on the city. Is he standing before God on their behalf? And so... Uh, I don't know that it's the argument down to 10 that's the, necessarily the intercessory prayer. This might be uh, Abraham giving God uh, and, you know. First of all, I think the point that I would want to say is, I think this has less to do with a historically accurate story than it has to do with this amazing parable about how we are to plead with God on behalf of our neighbors. Um, I'm not saying it's not historical, I'm completely okay if I get to meet Lot someday in the world to come. And Lot's like, yes, that totally happened. Um, however, um, I think that the way it's being told as a story isn't about are all these details exactly right as much as it is what is what can we learn from the way that this story was told about how we are to stand before God, how we are to argue for our neighbor. Well, with that, I do have a second question leading from that okay can can we kind of make the conclusion that abraham must have known sodom and gomorrah on a more neighborly level in order to do that i i don't know that we we do know that um because he doesn't seem to know whether or not there's even 10 righteous in the city okay um but i think he was betting on that there were yeah, yeah, he, like, uh, yeah. It's this whole yeah, five cities, yeah. you know. <laughs> Come on, God. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I think that they, he's betting on it. I mean, his nephew lives there, and him and his nephew have been close for quite some but time. he had, and he knew his nephew had at least two daughters because they both slept with them. So, I mean, so he, I mean, he knew that there was a family there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's some at least tangential. Though I don't think that's a prerequisite for pleading for with God for your neighbor. So I think when you do actually know your neighbor, uh, it gives you a more uh, maybe uh, helpful prayer. And this is again, I would argue that in many ways, prayer is more is is just as helpful for us, if not more helpful for us than it is with for God. Right? That prayer is when I mean, just just imagine. So take the entire church, all the faithful worldwide, and if we all began pleading for the mercy of God for our neighbors. Like, do you imagine that that would have an impact on the world? Um, even if God didn't physically do something in that moment, would just our posture of pleading for mercy for our neighbors, do you think that that would affect the world in a manner that we began showing our neighbors mercy? I think, 
to your point, I think it would almost prompt people to start to want to know their neighbors better. Mm-hmm. Because if you're, if you're trying to formulate a prayer, you don't even know them, don't know anything they need. Right. Right. I think when you start to pray, you'll become quickly of the realization, I don't know them well enough to really know what they even need. So I guess I better find out what they need so I can pray better. Yeah. I was kind of thinking of that when Don was talking about the example of praying for poverty and being in a more, me being in a more privileged setting. I wouldn't know what to pray because I wouldn't know what they need. So then, like, the two could be interconnected in, like, a circle. Constantly trying to interact with their neighbors and praying for them. And I wasn't sure if Abraham was doing having the same relationship with Sodom and Gomorrah at this point in the time. Yeah, I mean, if there's anyone that probably could have found favor in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have been Abraham. He only gave some of his possessions to Lot, and Lot was able to live comfort within Sodom and Gomorrah, which must mean that Lot did not bring down the uh, per capita income of the city. Uh, And so Abraham, if anyone, probably had the ability to interact with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in some way. Um, but again, I would just say, I, th- I think hopefully you're, you're talking about poverty. And since I don't know necessarily all the ins and outs of poverty in Toledo or in Maumee, right? Because we can really narrow it down to very specifics. Poverty here in Blacksburg is different than poverty in Toledo. And, and so knowing our neighbor and it, it kind of causing us or compelling us to get to know people in poverty so we can pray better for that, I think it is, is hopefully an outworking of this, but I don't think it's a prerequisite. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things, chicken or the egg, you know, it might begin with praying, uh, which then leads you into relationship with people, or it might begin with relationship that leads you into praying for people. Chicken. Chicken <laughs> is the word is the, the bird is the word and the word was in purpose. Uh, that was Jared and Nick, I think, came up with that. Um, so, all right. Any other questions or thoughts about this? I realized that this was a little bit more of me just kind of going on and on and on, and I apologize for that. But this this is one of my passages that I think is so foundational for how we should church um, and so foundational for how we should uh, live in our communities. Um, so well, it's also, for me, it's transformational in how I pray. Good. Yeah. It, I hope so. Yeah. I, I mean, and it, the thing is, is it makes prayers a little more complicated um, too. So. Uh, also, I think meaningful because the prayers you were talking about, like help the poor, I, I always felt like they were so empty and meaningless. And, yeah, or just like okay, I said help the poor, but nothing happened. Yeah, they're still poor. And so the question then was, there, you know, was I not praying right, or am I not? right with God so my prayers aren't being heard or you know so I mean there's all these things but then shifting that thought and saying don't just pray for you know the poor don't just pray for someone you know actually engage and 
and work to, you know, to help advocate for them. Yeah, I, I, I really wonder how much that the mindset of God help the poor uh, type of praying has also caused a kind of decline that have caused uh, a lot of mistrust in the faith, maybe. Because, like, everyone, every Christian prays for the poor, yet there's poor everywhere. So, like, Right. What does that do to your faith if that's yeah. what you think? Well, this this is where I think it's really important. Again, this is why I'm so passionate about biblical literacy, right? Um, because we don't have biblical literacy, we don't we don't have a foundation. So, like, uh, you know, I think particularly people in Blacksburg, maybe you, Mike, and Diana, um, have heard me talk about this, and Ashley, uh, that um, that Deuteronomy 15 says, if you do everything I've commanded, there will be no poor amongst you. That's what Deuteronomy 15 says. And then God says what I think is one of the more ominous statements. Well, actually, before he says the ominous statement, he's, God says, uh, so when you meet someone who's in poverty, be generous and give to them. Right? Why? Because it's your fault that poverty still exists. Well, it's you. Uh, corporate, the church, the faithful's fault, that poverty still exists. So when you meet someone who's poor, you better be generous because they're in that situation because I have made a promise to you that if the faithful live in the way that I've called you to live, there will be no way that poverty can exist in your midst. And then this is where it gets ominous at the end. Uh, it says, and therefore the poor will always be with you. Right? And that's what Jesus is quoting when the disciples say, hey, shouldn't we have sold that and given it to the poor? And Jesus looks at them and says, you know, if you're doing all that God commanded, the poor won't be with you, with you. And he just looks at them and he realizes that they've missed the point. They've accused this woman of being a sinner. And his response to them is, you know, the poor are always going to be with you. And I guarantee an you that that <laughs> felt like such a punch to the gut yeah. for the disciples. Like the reason there's poor right. is because of you. And and instead we read that and go, well, what are we going to do about the poor always going to be with us? And not realize that we're, we're actually we're actually condemning our own behavior when we say that. Right? Um, and so the church is called to this more profound, beautiful thing. So, all right. I, I better stop because I'll get rolling and start a whole other sermon. <laughs> um so real quick before we end and we do uh, prayer requests, Tally, are you still willing to share about? Yeah, so, so Tally, uh, eager. eager to tell. So Tally has this app that she's been using that um, I think is really interesting, and I don't know if you guys would be interested in So I asked if Tally would be willing to share. You can either sit here or just speak up to the mic, whatever one you want to do. Okay. Not like so far away. Hi. Um, so I don't know if you guys saw, but um, I downloaded. Oh, you did! Yay! I'm using this app called Traffic Cam, not like the ones that you drive by and then get a ticket because you're speeding, but or ran a red light. But the one, um, but trafficking, like human trafficking. So um, it's it's T R A F F I C K C A M, and what it is for is to combat human human trafficking by. Um, 
by starting a database, or it's, it's, it has already started a database of hotel rooms. So what you do is when you stay in a hotel, you um, put in the hotel that you are staying in, and then you put in the room number, and then you take four pictures of the hotel room, and it gets uploaded into this giant database so that when there are pictures found online of um, children or other people who've been um, abducted or who are missing, um, the uh, police are able to um, cross-reference the hotel picture with the person in it with this giant database of hotel rooms that now people are contributing to. Um, I'm a flight attendant, so I stay in a lot of hotels, so it seemed logical for me, but even if you only do it one time, you might be the only person who took a picture of that hotel room. Um, so yeah, it's really super simple to use. And obviously you have to enable your location, but it's anonymous besides that. Um, super easy, super simple. So I would say download it, even if you're just gonna stay in a hotel room next month, Daddy. one time, even if it's not something you regularly do. Daddy. Any other questions? <laughs> Any other questions? Pretty straightforward. So, thank you. Sure. Uh, so check that out. Um, you know, Toledo is unfortunately one of the highest uh, human trafficking cities in the nation, um, and so I think you know here uh, that's that's a little bit more uh, you know kind of felt uh, because the National Human Trafficking uh, Conference is held at the University of Toledo every year because of that. Um, so, but yeah, if you guys uh, can or have time, definitely check out uh, Traffic Cam. Wow, that felt like a little. So commercial. Well, you know, it's funny because I think human trafficking, wait, baby, wait, baby, is one of those things, like so many things that if you don't have, you know, I've, I've said to so many of my friends who are really passionate about certain things. Well, we all are passionate about something different. I can't be passionate about 20 different causes. I would exhaust myself. But as far as the human trafficking, it's one of those things where you think, well, what you know, short of volunteering for an organization, which I actually thought about doing, but it required practically a full-time job to do it. It was like, what can I possibly do? So when I heard about this, it was so simple. And yeah, even if you do it once, like, right. it's like, oh, there is something I can do. It's simple, it's easy, and it could be really helpful. Yeah. The pictures you take might be the ones, you don't know, that, yep. the, that the police need, so. Awesome, thank you. Come here, Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so we aren't recording currently, so does anybody have any uh, prayer requests? 